Well, so we are about to jump into Genesis chapter 5, and I thought, uh, what better way to really um, get us into the, the study than to just read the whole chapter together. And I don't know about you, this morning, maybe you woke up and you were thinking, I really need a word from the Lord, I really need to spend some time just, uh, just having the Spirit of God just wash my soul and, and encourage me. Maybe you've had a you know, a difficult week, a challenging week, and so there's nothing better, I think, than to read 32 chapters of the genealogy to really inspire us and get us going. Actually, this is a really a, a compelling um, section of, of Scripture, and we'll talk about some of those key compelling points. But let's read throughout the entire text of Genesis chapter 5 to kind of set it in our minds. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel. <laughs> Pronounce that five times fast. 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Are you starting to see a pattern here? When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And then we have this break in the pattern. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So there you have the the generations, the genealogy of Adam, as it states in the first verse there. And of course, I think that you notice right out of the gate that it has this consistent structure, this very almost monotonous and in some ways somewhat depressing pattern that is broken up in really three key sections. Um, But the monotony and the repetition of that pattern uh, also tells us something significant about this genealogy. 
The first thing I want to do really quickly is talk a little bit about some of the purposes and, and some of the importance of this genealogy, particularly in the context of this study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and in particular, what we've talked about so far and where we're headed into Genesis chapter 6. Obviously, we talked about this week before last, I guess, and maybe even a week prior to that, uh, we, we, had t- we had mentioned this. But, but as we know, when you look at the progression of Adam's line, of Adam's seed, uh, the offspring of Adam and Eve, it's a very discouraging story through Genesis chapter 4, of course, because you have the birth of Cain and Abel, and you have the treachery and murder, Cain murdering Abel, and Abel being the one whose sacrifice and worship was acceptable to the Lord, and Cain yielding up a, a life of apostate unbelief, of rejection of God, even, even after God's um, pursuing him and appealing to him to repent. He rejected that. But then we also studied how God shed abroad his common grace amongst Cain and his offspring, and you have this description of this development of a very, very sophisticated, advanced culture throughout the remainder of Genesis chapter 4, and you see the development of things like uh, poetry and music, and you have metallurgy and advancements in other things, that uh, building of cities, so there was elements of probably some degree of architecture and design. You have this emergence of a very sophisticated, uh, advanced civilization that takes place there. But still, it concludes with Lamech and Lamech's beautiful poem of boasting in his murder and speaking to his two wives with the introduction there of polygamy. And uh, you, you have this this clear indication of even though you have this very sophisticated culture that is blessed by God's common grace, it is still a culture in the line of Cain in that it's a culture of what we called, um, what do we call them? We called them uh, cultured savages. That was a term that, that someone used I read, cultured savages. They, they were very cultured, very sophisticated, but even in their culture, Lamech was the, the prime example of that in that he was boasting in his murder, and even presuming upon the grace of God by stating that if God would avenge Cain sevenfold, he would avenge me seven, 70-fold or 700-fold. I can't remember the specifics there. But just boasting and presuming upon the, the, the provision of God and the, and the character of God in that, in that wickedness. But then you have the conclusion of chapter 4 with the introduction of Seth and the birth of his son, Enosh. And it says that in those days, men began to proclaim the name of the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord. And we talked about how that was a, a really an indication of not just uh, a faithfulness to the Lord, but it was actually an indication of proclamation. Uh, the terminology there indicates that it was, it, there was a, an evangelistic kind of uh, effort that was underway there. It wasn't just that he was walking faithfully in obedience to the Lord or walking uprightly, but that he was proclaiming the name of the Lord. There's an indication of the worship of Yahweh being introduced there. And so it presents to us, in the end of chapter 4, this promise line, this, this seed, this offspring, that is really the offspring or the line of promise. And so here we have that unfolding for us in greater detail. This is the line of promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the curse is being unfolded uh, upon the serpent and Adam and Eve, and really on their progeny, on us and on the world and on the, the created order. 
he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, with the birth of Cain, we recognize that that's definitely not the child of promise or the line of promise, the father of the line of promise. Abel, though he was faithful in his worship, is murdered. Seth becomes the replacement of Abel, and he is the father of this line of promise. And we talked about this last time. This is the line of the Messiah. This is the genealogy of the Messiah. And you see this in Luke chapter 3, toward the very end there of that genealogy, where it traces the genealogy back, starting from Christ and working its way backwards, as opposed to this one working its way forwards. And you see there at the end, in verses 36 to 38, he references there the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Cain, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So this is that, that promised line, that promised seed that was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. John Calvin kind of summarizes this section in this way. He says, The generations signify a continuous succession of a race, or a continuous progeny. Further, the design with which this catalog was made was to inform us that in the great, or rather we might say prodigious multitude of men, there was always a number, though small, who worshipped God, and that this number was wonderfully preserved by celestial guardianship, lest the name of God should be entirely obliterated and the seed of the church should fail." So this significant genealogy is the the line of the Messiah. That's what we're reading about here. It's great significance there. Victor Hamilton points out that in contrast to the line of Cain that we see described in in the cultural um, implications of that line and what they produced culturally and and societally in the secular society that unfolds in Genesis chapter 4, in contrast to that line, the contribution, he says, he says that this line, their bequeathal to history is not culture, but theology. This is the line of the promised Messiah, the, the line that God brings about his salvation through Christ. So that's one significant point for us to just recognize in general about this genealogy. The second thing that's really significant about this genealogy that we should take note of is that along with the, the elements of chapter 4 that we see, it is the only historical, chronological link between creation and the flood. There's no other time-based link to that history of man. The period of time from the creation of Adam, the first man, to the flood, as you calculate the, the years, the spans of life there in that genealogy, is 656 years, and you do not have that, that record anywhere else. So connecting chronologically, historically, this, this period of time, this is the place where that, takes, that occurs and that happens. And the flood, obviously, as we'll study in the coming weeks, it completely obliterates every, every one, every oral history, every oral tradition, every family tradition, every story from grandparents past other than Noah and his family, everything else is gone. So this record is the, the document, the, the chronological link, historical link between Adam and the flood. It's very important. And then, of course, as we see, what we'll see going forward, that then is linked very cleanly and precisely to Abraham, 
and forward. So this is a really critical um, span of Scripture giving us chronological information. So it's easy for us to get caught up in this monotonous. He lived this long, had a son, named him, lived some more time, had other sons and daughters, and then he died. But really the significance in this chronology is, is, is very important. It also, this, this chronology, this uh, genealogy, I should say, it really gives us context for how Adam and his offspring fulfilled God's command to multiply and fill the earth. So it gives you an indication of, of how, that, how that happened. Uh, conservative estimates using average lifespans and birth rates, if you look at the lifespan of these these men, as they're listed here in Genesis chapter 5, conservative estimates would put the population at the time of the flood at somewhere around 7 billion people. If you just take average birth rates and you calculate it out, and I've, I, I read several different ones, and some of them make you dizzy. I literally saw some calculations that had like, you know, this over this to the, you know, this power, and I mean, I got dizzy because I'm not a math guy. But if you just take, I mean, conservative estimates, if you just take lifespan and average birth rates and the number of children that would have been born during that lifespan, the point is is that by the time of the flood, the earth was significantly populated to the point where it's populated now, actually. And most people wouldn't think of it that way. But it also gives you context for the magnitude of the judgment that's to come the magnitude of the judgment that's to come. So when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and you start reading the narrative of the judgment of God through the flood and you set it up against the context of what the, the actual population of the world would have been at that time and only eight people were preserved and the, 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 the pervasive nature of wickedness that is described in Genesis chapter 6 was multiplied upon person after person after person after person. It was... Significant. So it gives us some context there for that, just by looking at these, these facts and figures of the lifespan of these men. It also, another thing, this, I found this really an interesting point. This, I pulled this from uh, John MacArthur's sermon on this passage. It affirms the reliable transmission and preservation of God's word. Think about this. This is really a, a fascinating way to, to see this information. He said this, when you work uh, with the numbers a little bit, it becomes very fascinating. We learned that Adam overlapped Methuselah for 200 years. All the way down to Methuselah, and Adam is still alive 200 years into his life. So Methuselah could have met Adam. Methuselah actually overlapped Noah for 600 years. So one man bridges Adam to Noah. You don't necessarily think of it in those terms, right? But one man bridges Adam to Noah. You'd say, why is that important? It's very important. There was no written revelation. This is obviously I'm reading from John's sermon. Have you ever had that sort of scheme worked out where you try to pass information around a group of people and get confused after so many times being passed? You know, the operator game. You do it in school all the time, right? I'm going to tell you a secret in your ear and you pass it along and Lord knows what it's going to be when it gets back there, right? So just the, the, the logistical nature of passing on information. So God used this in a way to preserve that accuracy. 
He said that's why God made sure that these people stretched across that whole span of time, so that Methuselah knew firsthand about Adam and could pass it on to Noah. Noah overlapped Shem for 400 years. Are you ready for this? Um, This is John. I'm just quoting. He was enthusiastic, I'm sure, and he was delivery here. Are you ready for this? Abraham died before Shem. Shem could have told Abraham firsthand about the flood. It is very likely that Shem was still alive during the lifetime, not uh, Abraham only, not Isaac only, but Jacob. So when you look at these lifespans and you start seeing how they, they span across time and across these different biblical characters that are so paramount in the redemptive plan and purpose of God, it's, it's quite compelling. And you start thinking about, well, how did all this happen and how did all this information get passed on? And how, it's, it's really only boils down to a few people through history. Shem could have told Abraham firsthand about the flood. It is very likely that Shem was still alive during the lifetime, not of Abraham only, not of Isaac only, but of Jacob, all the way down into the life of the nation of Israel, all the way down to Jacob. You really only need four people to span Adam to Abraham, to span creation to Abraham. You just need Adam, Methuselah, Shem, and Abraham. You can go all the way to Jacob with those people. It's really important because God was passing down this divine truth. For Abraham, then, the account of the creation would be like referring to accounts by his great-grandfather. Accurate truth was handed down in that way. Isn't that fascinating? Never thought of it that way. So let's talk a few, about a few key observations from this genealogy. And I'll just tell you, I was going to say next week we're going to talk about some of this more, but we're not going to meet uh, for Sunday school next week. So it'll be the week after that. But I want to make some, some observations, some key observations from the actual text. And then we're going to spend a little more time on a, on a couple of these and dive a little bit deeper uh, the next time we're together. But the first observation I would point us to is right there in the first two verses. And it's this reaffirmation of the Imago Dei, the image of God, reaffirmation of that. When God created man, it says, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So right there you have this pull from Genesis chapter 1 and this significant statement about the special creation of man and the special purpose of man as being the image bearer of God on the earth. And so before you get into this, this, this genealogical record and stating all of these people and their lifespans and their offspring, there is this reaffirmation that in the midst of all this, God's purpose of man being his image bearer is preserved. It is not obliterated. It does not go away. In spite of all the wickedness, in spite of all the rejection of his kindness and grace, in spite of all the pervasive rejection and apostasy that, that we see unfolding in Genesis chapter 4 and the line of Cain, and that we see on more vivid display as we get into the flood narrative, that the purposes of God as, as creating man as his image bearers remains true. So there's that reaffirmation of this critical nature of man as God's special creation. The next thing I think that is obvious, and I kind of alluded to it in the way that I read the text, is that you obviously see this reign of sin and death. right? I mean, it's just over and over and over again. Such and such lived a few years, they had a son, they had some sons and daughters, they lived a few more years, and then they died. 
So it's just there's really not a lot of life detail except for a few key uh, characters in the narrative there. And it's just this, this re- repetition of this theme of living, bearing children, and dying. Living, bearing children, and dying. Living, bearing children, and dying. The pattern is repetitive in that a patriarch lives for a time. The patriarch has a son whose name is given. The patriarch's lifespan after the son is numbered. The patriarch's other offspring are generally referenced. The patriarch's total lifespan is confirmed, and the patriarch dies. And that's it, over and over and over again. A little bit monotonous, actually intentionally. But even more so, if you just think about this, you just take Adam, for example. Here's what it says about Adam in verses 3 to 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. This all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. So for Adam, think of this, that's 930 years of wrestling with sin. 930 years of witnessing the massive escalation of wickedness on the earth. 930 years of that. Now, if, if you and I are seeking to faithfully walk with God, if you and I are seeking to be sanctified by the renewing of our minds and, ha- and not being conformed to the pattern of this world, and we're in fellowship with other believers and we're not only receptive to, but we're pursuing the accountability that fellowship brings to us. Because our our heart's desire is to please and honor the Lord and to mortify the flesh and become more and more like Christ. If that's the walk that we are pursuing, then you are very, very familiar with the own uh, fatigue and weariness that your own battle with sin can bring. Imagine 930 years of that of that constant, pervasive battle with sin internally, and then witnessing what is happening. So you're Adam. You were created in the image of God. You walked with God. You lived in the garden. You experienced paradise. Obviously, were a participant in the fall, contributed to the, the curse being leveled, but then saw the forgiveness and grace of God come, and yet for 930 years, you witness growing treachery and death and the challenges of walking in a fallen world. Shane? So when you, when you talk about just the exegetical implications of, and I, I thought about doing a little bit of this um, as an introduction to our study, but I actually listened to a, a sermon um, yesterday evening. You know, it always, it always grieves me when I hear, um, it's one thing to hear, you know, some type of um, debate by a professing Christian, maybe they're a professing Christian scientist of some sort, and they are, they're debating some non 
literal Genesis interpretation of origins. So maybe they're debating, you know, old earth, but God started it all. So, you know, God initiated the Big Bang, and so all the things that we are observing uh, and, and have concluded through, you know, through sophisticated scientific exploration are true, and so, you know, it's really the task of us to really understand Scripture in light of what we see in the, in the observed world and through scientific, modern scientific discovery. Even, even those who would profess faith in Christ and would argue from that vantage point, it's one thing when that's being done by uh, someone who's um, you know, in the scientific community, or maybe they're a philosopher of sorts or something like that. But when you, when you hear it from the pulpit in, in a church, you see it on video, and you're seeing several thousand people consuming it live, and then countless multitudes more receiving that message uh, through some other form of media. It's so grieving to hear this cavalier approach to um, really undermining the accuracy and precision of Genesis as it relates to things like Adam and the reality of his, him being a historical figure who lived and lived for a specific span of time and had these offspring and was in a genealogical line and was in, I mean, it just, it's very green, but I listened to that yesterday and it made me think, how can I bring that back into our, our time? Because it's just such one of those things where we have to be so mindful of the fact that you cannot, in some cavalier way, try to merge secular science with scripture and not completely undermine the veracity of the truth that you say you believe from Scripture. You can't do it. And that's, that's a point that grieved me yesterday, as you can tell, when I heard that. It was a reference to, you know, the Big Bang. and Anyway, it was all in the context of a sermon, though. Um, so back to the kind of the point here, this reign of sin and death. Um, obviously, this, just taking the life of Adam as an example who, who was the original man created in the image of God, walked with God in the garden, and yet for 930 years has to not only struggle with it personally, but witness its effect uh, throughout all of his offspring and all that that entails. Um, You just see this kind of illustrated in this, um, this constant repetition of the curse being leveled out over and over again, death, Death comes, death comes, death comes as a consequence of sin. But then you have this break in the pattern, this this wonderful break in the pattern that comes uh, in verses 21 to 24. And that's the reality of communion with God and the hope of eternal life that you see in the testimony of Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is a dramatic break in the pattern, obviously. I mean, when you just read it and just kind of get into that rhythm of that repeated structure, and then you get to this, it is a dramatic break in this somewhat depressing and discouraging pattern of monotonous life, offspring, and death. That just seems to read that way. I, I think there was a break before that because you go back to the end of chapter four when Seth 
Yeah, certainly, and that's a, that's a good point. I, the, the, the way that the, the narrative reads is not to indicate that all these people were unfaithful or unrighteous or unredeemed. It's just that the emphasis of the text itself, the way it reads, presents this sort of this monotonous tone, this monotonous message of, of life, birth of a son, and death. How did Moses find out all of this? Moses wrote the first five books. Mm-hmm. Right? How did he find out about all of this that he's writing down? Uh, well, I mean, he found out through the inspiration of the Spirit and through the passing down of, of this information through faithful people. Right? Do you think God actually, since they didn't have a written word, do you think that God was still speaking to people uh, at this time? I mean, I, all we have is what Scripture tells us when he did it. But Enoch, for example, you think, well, how come he walked so closely with God? I mean, he was really special. God took him away. Uh, where did, on what grounds was he, was he walking with God? What, what did he have? What did he know? Follow. Yeah, and I think that I'm, that's, that's the area that I want to talk about a little bit more when we come back is this whole, this whole, um, principle of, of walking with God and just draw from other passages of scripture what a walk with God would look like. But I think that it would be, I mean, you can turn to Jude, which we'll look at next time we're together, and you can see some insight about Enoch and what that might have looked like a little bit, but it's still a very small glimpse. And so I think that um, you, have to, you have to kind of infer from other passages of scripture that reference walking with God or a walk with God to get a sense of what that might have looked like. I, I, I do think that there was some unique communion there, but it's hard for me to speculate on the specifics without... It's hard for me to, to speak to the specifics without feeling like I'm speculating a little bit because it's not clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... I mean, obviously there was fellowship there. So, Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think that you, know, you look throughout Scripture, I mean, there are special, there are special anointings that God brings f- for people to carry his message in a unique way. I mean, there's, there's those things that are testified to in Scripture, and we can certainly, you know, go to the Scriptures and talk about those things and, and feel quite confident that that's what happened and how it happened. But where the scripture is silent, it's, it's, you can say, well, it may have looked like this, it may have looked like that, but you can't say with specificity on that particular occasion or with that particular person, that's what happened. It's just, it's possible. It's, it's in the realm of the perspicuity or the, uh, the analogy of scripture to say, I mean, this is, this is, these are some ways in which God communed with, spoke to him. He spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks to another, right? So, so we know that that happened. Did it happen in this case? I mean, it seems very plausible, but the specifics of it are 
become a little bit speculative. That's, that's what I mean. So. I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, you said that maybe they had a population of about seven billion. Do we also assume that like, they were about as advanced as we were, or as we are? Like with like microwaves and, and iPhones and stuff? IPhones. No. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would not assume that. I mean, I, I mean, I, but I, again, I mean, if they had an iPhone, it was wiped out with a flood, and they had to start over. So I can't say that with certainty either. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you, I think that you get into the realm of, of speculation, and I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you do with that. But no, I don't think that I don't think that they had uh, that level of advancement. Really, the, the contrast between the, the Genesis four and what you see in Genesis four stands in stark contrast to what secular anthropology would tell you. And so that's, that was, that's the point of, of that passage in my mind as, as a point of contrast, because secular anthropology would tell you that man was primitive. You, you may have been here when I read that, that kind of that timeline from a secular anthropologist and how man was just you know, primitive. I mean, it took him hundreds of thousands of years before he could even walk upright. You know, I mean, it, and, and then he learned how to use fire like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years later. And so the testimony of Scripture over this short span of time is one where they are developing tools and implements and metal, using metallurgy and, and using metals to develop tools and implements and, and weapons and that kind of thing. There's, a, the, uh, there's poetry and music that's referenced and musical instruments and that kind of thing. So there's a sophistication there, whether they had enough time yeah. to develop. Uh, I mean, you think about, think about um, population growth and using that as an analogy for technological advancement. It's really not a, a direct correlation there. Because you've had periods of time where there's been population growth, but not the same technological advancements because it's not, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation there. So, I mean, I, that's my best shot at trying to answer that question. don't know if I did a very good job. All right. So, we've got the reality of communion with God and hope of eternal life as we see exemplified here. And, of course, I do want to talk about this more as we come back together. But you do see this dramatic break in this pattern of this particular section in Genesis chapter 5. And you know, right after right after this standard numbering of Enoch's uh, years before the birth of his son Methuselah, we're told this very specific thing that he walked with God, and this walk was a three hundred year walk, uh, in in the context of the narrative here. Then, of course, he had other sons and daughters, and then you have it repeated again. So obviously, this is an important point. This is an important characteristic about Enoch um, that he walked with God, and then God took him up. Another break in the pattern. Right when you're expecting him to have other sons and daughters and then die, or live this long and then die, he is no more because God took him. So we're going to explore that a little bit more uh, next time and really just talk about this idea of a walk with God. But for now, we'll just leave it at it is a promise of the reality of communion with God and the promise of eternal life is exemplified in this this testimony of, of Enoch. We think of living for a long time as being such a blessing, but it would, this would suggest that there's more blessing in being taken before you get to be that old. Yeah, yeah. And as we know, living for a long time, I mean, it's after a certain point, it's law of diminishing returns, right? I mean, it's like, you know, waking up every morning, you're like, oh, where did that come from, you know? I mean, I, so that didn't happen to me, but I, I've heard it happens to people. Yeah. At this point, you would think not pre-flood for sure, and certainly post 
post-cataclysm, that, that kind of thing increased, although the, the earth was cursed, so there was, there was some elements of, of that that we, I don't know if we can necessarily predict, but certainly that longevity had, had implications of a very different environment um, and a different genetic makeup as well, uh, not as many um, bad or hurtful mutations, if you will, in, in the genetic pool. Well, then the last uh, one I want to just mention to you guys before we close up here is that you see, again, there's three key breaks in the Genesis 5 narrative here. You have the first one, or I guess the first one's not a break. It's just, it's just a, a different uh, pattern than what you see predominating the text in that first few, those first few verses where you have this reaffirmation of the, uh, of the Imago Dei, the image of God. But here at the end, you have this other break in the pattern, Slight break, not as dramatic as the one with Enoch, but it has to do with the birth of Noah. And it's, and it's this idea of, of this reassurance of a future restoration or a future rest. That's what you kind of see emerging in this, these last few verses. In verse 28 to 29, it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, here's the, here's the, the break in the pattern. Up to this point, it would have been sort of typical for from, from most of the others. But there's this break because it says he called his name Noah, saying, quote, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And then it returns to the standard pattern that you see in the other, other figures there uh, aside from Enoch. So you see this, this implication of, of a promise that Noah represents something future, something hopeful for the future. And, and I, I gave it this idea of this, this reassurance of a future restoration and rest. Um, again, MacArthur, from his sermon on this, says this, Noah, which means rest or comfort, comes from a Hebrew word which means to breathe again or to catch your breath. Noah brought a breath of fresh air in a world of multiplied wickedness, where the line of Cain had already apostatized and the line of Seth was going corrupt. Because again, when you get to... Genesis chapter 6, it, it's even the line of Seth. I mean, the, the, the thoughts and intentions of man's heart were only evil continually. And then Noah was a man who walked with God, and Noah and his family were preserved. So there was, even the line of Seth had been corrupted to a meaningful degree. Noah, because of chapter 6, verse 9, he was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He was a man who walked with God. Again, another reference to a man who's walking with God. In verse 8, he was a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and because of that, he brought into the world this idea of, of rest or this breath, catching your breath, this breath of fresh air, so that even, even in the massive judgment that is, that is poured out literally uh, in, in the form of a deluge over the whole world, um, Noah represents hope and a future restoration, a future rest. So you see in this genealogy, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're doing your devotion time and you're reading through the genealogy and there might be a little bit more there than just monotony and names and dates and lifespans, right? The thing that I think is really um, interesting to note, just as you look at the whole sweep of the chapter, though, is you see this implication of legacy. Don't you? I mean, you think about, you've got this these people and their, their names, and you've got their offspring, and they had other sons and daughters, and they lived and they died. 
And it, it just calls to mind, for me at least, and I, I wonder if it would call to mind for you, this question of what, what would your legacy be? You know, would it be sort of a typical legacy, which is obviously going to have a lot more content to it than just what is written here in, in the pages of this genealogy of life and birth of someone and sons and daughters and more life and then death. Certainly it's going to have more content to it than that. But I would hope that we would desire our legacy to be one where, like Enoch, yes, they lived and they died. I mean, yes, they lived. And yes, they had sons and daughters. And yes, they had offspring and they have a family tree. And of course, but they walked with God. They walked with God. And that's what I want to talk about next time we're together is what does it mean for us to walk with God? How can we have a legacy like Enoch? And not, not for the sake of being known for something, but for the sake of just being faithful. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Any other final comments, by the way, before we dismiss? All right, let's pray.